0: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi,
1: Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour of the Bible line. So glad to be with you. And if you have a particular question or issue that you'd like to discuss today, all you need to do is call us locally at 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio at uh, wagp.net or tbl at wagp.net. All right, Uh, Rick... um, as always, there are questions that people uh, send in to us. They're discussing maybe a passage with a spouse or a son or a daughter, or there is an issue that's going on in their personal life or just in their quiet time, and they're reflecting on a text and they're not sure of its meaning or application. And that's what we're here for for the next hour. And so you can call live and uh, you can go on the air or you can simply dictate your question. But let's go ahead and get started. I think we've already had some questions that have come in.
0: Indeed, we had, Pastor. And uh, uh, the first caller said they'd like to know, why did Jesus choose Judas and uh, as a disciple, and did Judas go to hell?
1: Well, that is a great question. And in my series on the Gospel of John, I address that question. Uh, number one, Judas was not a believer. So let me turn to John chapter 6, if you remember uh, there are seven miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John, five that are unique to him, two that are shared in the other Gospels, and one that is shared, and it's a miracle that's found in all four Gospels, is the feeding of the 5,000, and it uh, is a very, very important miracle. But what's interesting with John is he doesn't use the typical word for miracle. He uses the word Sameon which is a, a, a word that basically means a miracle with a message. And so with the various miracles that John records, there's a message that goes with it. And of course, he is the only one who records this message. It's called the Bread of Life Discourse. And if you remember, Jesus likened um, great truths about himself through the feeding of the uh, 5,000. That's 5,000 men, excluding women and children, so conservatively, 15,000, probably more likely at least 20,000 people were fed. And then, of course, when it's all over and the miracles are done and the food is gone, uh, they leave by the droves. And we learn in Scripture that after the miracle was done, he, of course, uh, gave this sermon uh, in a place called Capernaum. We'll be going, God willing, to Capernaum. In September of 2019, as we go to Israel, it's a real place and there's a real synagogue there, but uh, they, they just left. And then Jesus turned to them and he said, well, are you going to leave as well? Uh, does this cause you to stumble? And of course, uh, they said, Lord, you know, who else has the words of eternal life but, but you? No, we're here to stay. And so Jesus said, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe, and then he says, and who it was that would betray him. For this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless the Father has granted uh, him that life. Now, people, of course, can resist God drawing him to, to themselves. Uh, they have a decision that they need to make. But the Bible is very clear that Judas, from the beginning, did not know the Lord. Now, one of the, uh, I guess, points of debate that comes up very often is how does this fit into God's sovereignty and man's human free will? In other words, if Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him, and Judas, of course, uh, died as an unbeliever, uh, we read in John 13, uh Jesus is really even reaching out to him when he washes even Judas's feet, and he doesn't use scalding water. I mean, he cares about the man. He is even giving him one last chance. But Judas uh, willfully chose to rebel against God, and then Satan entered into him, and it was all over. Uh, he had made his decision, and he had sealed it. Now, there is this balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So I do not think, like some present Judas that he was a puppet of sorts. Um, And it is difficult for many to reconcile this concept of free will, as most of us understand it, just what it means, with God's foreknowledge. But that's because they take a different definition and a different take on foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge is used in a number of times in the New Testament itself, where it's defined by examples of just prior knowledge. So God knew in advance that Judas would betray him. And by the way, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah spoke of of the fact that Judas would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And the psalmist also, in Psalm 41, uh, also spoke about the one who would lift up his heel against him. And Jesus quotes that in Matthew 26. When Judas, of course, rebels, he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, and then he goes out and he hangs himself. So Jesus made it very clear that Judas is the son of perdition, that he was a lost man. But Jesus choosing him did not in any way mitigate against his free will. Yes, he knew in advance that he was going to betray him. And again, I think that's important because it substantiates, one, the prophecies that were written in the Old Testament, Christ's knowledge of those prophecies. But it also, you know, proves that Jesus was the Messiah, that he would choose one because he is the omniscient God and the foreknowing God who would rebel against him. So Judas uh, could have become a believer, and then Jesus, you know, but, but, but he didn't. Uh, but he had a free will, and God knew that he would freely reject him, and so he's prophesied of in advance. So it's really, among other things, it's a pointer, It's a neon sign saying that Jesus is Messiah because he fulfilled all 300 plus, Dr. Walford puts it at 333, uh, but he fulfilled all 300 plus prophecies concerning his first coming. Every single one of them was literally fulfilled. And Judas was a demonstration of that. Again, he's not a pulpit puppet. He chose to rebel against God, but God, knowing in advance that this would happen, uh, indeed, wrote of it in the Old Testament, and then Judas lived it out. So Judas died, and he went to hell, not because, of course, he committed suicide, as many falsely assume. It is possible for a Christian to commit suicide, but he went to hell sooner than he would have uh, because he rejected the Lord God as his personal Savior. Uh, he was filled, among with other things, with greed. He, he was pilfering the um, The treasury that they carried, the the, the petty cash, so to speak, where they paid their daily needs that were contributed to them from different disciples. A number of women gave financially to Christ's ministry. The Bible reminds us of that. And those needs were met as they traveled from day to day. And he was stealing from that fund. Uh, He was filled with greed. And greed is a form of idolatry. And many people are kept out of the kingdom of God for their simple love of money. And Judas was one such person. So you'll never meet Judas in heaven because he rejected the Savior and chose the things of this world and the fame that it might bring. He, of course, was hoping that Jesus would you know, conquer Rome, and he didn't meet his expectations. So he ended up turning his back on him. And today he's lost and forever in the awful place of eternal retribution.
0: Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Katie from Hilton Head writes, How do we balance the understanding that believers' sins are forgiven with the fact that we will have to give an account to God for our lives? What happens if we end up with a poor account to give? And she quotes, uh, or she references 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans 14.12.
1: Second well, 2 Corinthians 5.10, of course, says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one will be reconciled for his deeds done in the body, be they good or bad. So there is a judgment that God's people will someday face, the Christian judgment. Of course, it's distinctly different from the great white throne judgment. This judgment takes place in heaven, and it's not to see if we get into heaven, but how we are rewarded in heaven. And Paul uses the first person plural verb, and that even as the great apostle that he was, he includes himself in this. And he uses it, of course, as a motivation for him want to be uh, to please the Lord with his life. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans 14 and verse 12, it says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And then, of course, this judgment is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the context, he is dealing with teachers in the church, and he's just reminding us that every teacher in the local assembly will have to give an account for the way he built God's church, whether he's using materials that constitute wood, hay, and straw, worldly methods that he described in chapter one, which unfortunately is what's happening today. Churches are being built using inferior materials, and at the judgment seat of Christ, they will be consumed. Uh, The material that we're supposed to use are not the ways of the world and the wisdom of men, but the Word of God. And if a church is not built on the Word of God, it's really not being built on the foundation, which is Christ. But what is true of Bible teachers will be true of every Christian, because someday all of us will need to give an account of ourselves to the Lord. So you can take 1 Corinthians and apply it really to any born-again, blood-bought child of God. He says in verse 10 of that chapter, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And if you go back into the Acts of the Apostles, you discover Paul preached the gospel. He was the first one to evangelize the people in the city of Corinth, and so he laid a foundation. And then he mentions here another is building on it. There are Bible teachers, some that he left behind, some who came in after him, who built upon the foundation of that assembly. And, of course, he is writing to this church when he says that, and they know who their pastors are. And so he admonishes that each man must be careful how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If a church is legitimate, then it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's not a church. But the way you build on that foundation can be very different. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. The day he's referring to is the judgment day that Christians will face, when each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And if we've used gold, silver, and precious stones, that's one category, and some try to Uh, differentiate what a gold work looks like, a silver work, a precious work, and I've read a number of uh, different commentaries in the last 30 years on that, but really it's difficult to do. I think the major point that he's making is there's two categories, those kinds of things that are imperishable and those that are cheap and uh, will be consumed with fire. I think that's the point. The day will show it because each man's work will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of every man's work. So God is interested not just in what you do, but how you do it. And you can be engaged in spiritual things, but if you're not doing it in the fullness of the Spirit, which, by the way, is the broader context, because he's paralleling a carnal Christian with a spiritual man. And we are to be spiritual people. We are to walk in the fullness of the Spirit and not in the energy of the flesh. So you can do a, an activity that might be a good activity to do. You could serve children in your church this week. But if you're not filled with the Spirit, at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be wood, hay, and straw. It will be consumed with fire. So he reminds us that God is testing the quality of each man's work. Now, to bring it back into your question, yes, all of our sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. And so this is not a judgment on sin, This is a judgment on service. But if you are out of fellowship with God as a believer, then you're living in sin. Now, it may not be the overt sins of the flesh, but if you're just walking in the energy of the flesh and you're not depending upon the Spirit of God, then you're storing up wood, hay, and stubble. Whatever you do, no matter how earnestly you do it, if it's not done by the Spirit's help, then it's wood, hay, and stubble. And And that's time that is spent, that is wasted time. It's service time that is wood, hay, and stubble time. And so he reminds us if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. What kind of loss? A loss of reward. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Saved but singed, so to speak. And there's a lot of Christians like that when they meet the Lord at the judgment seat because they did not walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and they spent more time out of fellowship with God than they did in fellowship with God, it will be wood, hay, and stubble. Now, again, everything we do is evaluated. You may be a student listening to me today, and you have uh, study plans and tests to prepare for as you go through your final exams here in December, as people do each year, and, and you know, you're, you're doing it in your own power. All that study and all that preparation is wood, hay, and stubble. You see, we tend to uh, take uh, works and say, well, this work over here is spiritual and this one is not. No, it's uh, just as spiritual a work for a mom to be at home today cleaning her house and changing the diapers of little infants as it is for someone to be sharing the gospel or teaching the Word of God. Everything is spiritual in the realm of God. Every work, everything we do is evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it is true, with that said, that if a person is a godly person and they're renewing their mind, they will also invest in things that uh, are important to God. It's important to God that you take care of your child well, that you teach your child the Word of God. It's important to God that you share your faith. It's important to God that you honor the first day of every week, the Lord's Day. You gather with His people. It's important to God that you uh, find out what your spiritual gift is and you utilize it and you serve it. So everything that we do when the church is gathered, when the church is scattered, uh, it's all spiritual work and God will evaluate it. So this is not a sin. This is not a judgment for sin. This is a judgment for service. And when we're in sin, we can't serve God appropriately and it's wood, hay, and stubble time. So this is important. This is really, really important. And by the way, if you want to study this in detail, this is one of the uh, classes that we um, have at Community Bible Church. It's called the Discovery Class, and it's a 45-week course. And one of the sessions in that 45-week course is how to develop an eternal perspective. And we spend three weeks just on that, and we look at what is it that constitutes Treasure laid up in heaven. Jesus told us to lay up treasure in heaven. Why? Because there is reward. He's not, again, teaching us to earn heaven. And Paul is not teaching us that um, we'll go to purgatory for a period of time. And this is a classic text, of course, that Roman Catholics use to defend the doctrine of purgatory along with a non-canonical book, a book that God didn't inspire called 2 Maccabees. And they take 2 Maccabees 12 in 1 Corinthians 3, and they bleed them together, and they create the false doctrine of purgatory. No, Christ on the cross uh, satisfied the Father's demands. He paid in full all the wrath that our sin deserves. So, this is not a punishment. This is an evaluation with a reward that is in view. Uh, God is going to reward people varying amounts in eternity, and it will make a difference to us. And uh, we should do it not for the reward's sake, but because of our love for Christ. And Christ told us to store up treasure in heaven. And because we love him, we want to obey him. And we love him because he first loved us. That's a great question. Let's uh go on to the next one.
0: Well, Pastor, we've been doing this program for, gosh, over 25 years now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, uh, you know, we've had multiple questions that keep coming up from time to time, but I don't think we've ever had this question. All right. Uh, They just called it in. This person would like to know, with the progression of robotics and artificial intelligence, is it possible that there is a demonic influence with human-created beings because these robots are so lifelike?
1: Uh, Repeat the last part of that. I just want to make sure I understand the question. (laughs) All
0: right. Um, Is it possible that w- there is a demonic influence with these human-created beings because these robots are so lifelike. You know, these robots they're making now, they, they look almost human. They, they jump, they talk. Anyway, there's, <laughs> there's a progression, and this, right, I guess this right. listener is wondering whether there's a demonic influence in these robots that are looking so human-like.
1: Well, yes and no. Let me let me hit it in the broad category first. Uh, what comes to my mind immediately is what the Apostle Paul wrote in the Book of Ephesians, the second chapter. And so, in Ephesians two, it says, "In you were." He's speaking to people who are now saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's one of the titles that is given for Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So he describes the evil one as the prince of the power of the air and is that spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, certainly everything that an unbeliever does is not necessarily evil. But there are many things that unbelievers do that are evil for the simple fact that they are being energized. It's the word energo. Uh, He is working. It's energo. He's energizing the sons of disobedience. He's giving them ideas in which to pursue. And so there are people who have made robotic life a God in itself. And of course, it's been all over the news now across Europe. They have Uh, robotic brothels where people are intimate with a machine. I mean, that's just sick. Uh, That's evil. That's from the pit of hell. Uh, That's feeding man's lust. That's people uh, following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, So I would say that these robotic beings are machines, but believe me, they are not uh, people in any respect and they are not Uh, in any respect, you know, like accountable to God, they're machines. Machines are not made in the image of God, only humans are. God breathes into man the breath of life. That's what distinguishes us from the animal world and the created world, and we might add the mechanical world. So, but with that said, that doesn't mean that Satan is not behind some of these uh, artificial intelligent ploys that are going on in the world. And what, of course, very often Satan may use for evil, God can use for good. And so the Internet is a great tool in and of itself uh, that is being used in a great way for the glory of God. And yet it's also a tool that Satan is using to communicate false ideologies and uh, to feed the lower sinful nature of man. But if you're asking if these robotic beings, so to speak, though they look very human-like, are somehow spiritual created machines, they're not. But what I would say is that behind certainly some dimensions of this, there was a thought that came from the evil one when Satan created uh, the idea to um, produce a machine that might be used for evil, whatever expression that might take.
0: All right. Very good. 525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at net. And um, our next caller, this person actually called last week. We didn't get to it, but they uh, were wondering if there is a Bible believing church near Clemson, South Carolina. He's wondering if you perhaps know anything about a large church in Anderson. And is that a church that you would recommend?
1: Well, the large church in Anderson that has multiple uh, branches across the uh, state of South Carolina is not a healthy church. It's called New Spring. And it was started by a, a pastor who I spoke out against years ago. And some people, I, I get emails, people hit my website, and they say, oh, you're harsh on this guy or whatever. And, and I spoke out against him because he had as much error in his theology as he had truth. And that's the problem with false teachers, is they mix truth with error. And it's very emotional, very loud, uh, but again, those outside cosmetics is not what really caused me to speak out against him. It was his theology. Now he's defunct. He's uh he's a thing of the past. Uh he has since divorced his wife. He was on drugs and all kinds of problems, porn problems. It was huge. So New Spring Church was never, in my opinion, a healthy church. And I would say it's still not a healthy church because the leadership that runs it now were from his own choosing. And that would say a lot. How how could someone who had their head screwed on straight follow, um, you know, that pastor? So, Perry Noble was, you know, not a good leader. The first time I was introduced to Perry Noble was maybe, I don't know, 12 or 12 years ago, ten, ten, twelve 10, 12 years ago. And he started actually in Anderson. And at the peak, he had 30,000 people in campuses across the state of South Carolina. And what was so sad was that he emptied out a lot of churches. And this is partly the pastor's fault in those churches. It was their fault partly because they weren't grounding their people and their people were looking for something and there is a hunger. And so some guy comes along who's really flashy and he steals his sheep away. But the churches in South Carolina took a huge hit and that a lot of, especially the Baptist churches, the Southern Baptist churches that represent the largest denomination in this state, were emptied out. It hurt their missions programs and that so many of the churches, um, that were giving to, uh, national missions, the cooperative program were no longer able to give because the people weren't there and they were struggling just to keep the lights on. And now he went south and, and of course they're in the midst of a scandal now. And, in and this is not necessarily a, um, a uh, theological scandal and it could happen to any church and I pray all the time that God will protect us. Uh, we we have when someone comes to community Bible church we have how many cameras, Rick, now? We've got over seventy five. Seventy five cameras. And we're watching every square inch of the building. Uh, but they had a volunteer who molested I at first it was fourteen and I think they added eight to the number and they had cameras but nobody was watching the cameras and And two, they had policies that, to me, are antithetical in our thinking. You don't have men. We have no men that ever bring children to the bathroom. Uh, It's all, you know, everything's, we we go to the 10th degree to protect our children. We had someone accused falsely one time, but we had cameras to prove that it was a big lie. And he was exonerated completely. We had many, 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 many more cameras even since then. Uh, to protect outside because we live in a day of terrorism where someone could come in, and so people are watching the outside cameras, the inside cameras, protecting our children. But New Spring is not a good church, it's a bad church. I'm going to make some people mad already, but I don't care. I, you know, I'm going to protect uh, this family that has called in today and asked the question. Um, again that doesn't mean all the other churches there are good. First Baptist Church of Clemson is Cooperative Baptist. That's a rotten denomination. We've got two Cooperative Baptist churches right here in Beaufort. Uh, It's a denomination that denies the infallibility of the Word of God, the inerrancy of Scripture. That's bad. Uh, So First Baptist Clemson, stay away from it. Keep away from it because you'd be going into a pastor who uses the language of historical Christianity, but he uses a different dictionary to define the terms. So if you asked him if you believed in the inspiration of Scripture, he'd say yes. If you asked him if he believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, he would say yes, but he has a totally different definition. So you can't go by that. Um, There is a church, and there's a lot of churches by the name Cross Point, and some are really solid and some are not so solid. But there is a church called Cross Point that was right off the campus, um, right off the big green there, where they have that famous tower. Uh, I think it's the School of Education that meets there. But right off the campus, there's a church called Cross Point, and the last time I looked, that was a church I could recommend. Um, the a former quarterback of like ten or twelve years ago is the pastor, at least he was, and they're doing a good work for Christ. Now, personally, I didn't like the music all that much, but he was sound biblically and um, teaching God's word, and they were having an impact for Christ, which I really appreciated. There's a PCA church, and again, I don't know because I haven't looked recently, so don't take me on either of these because sometimes leadership changes, but there's a PCA church, and PCA used to always, you could be trusted. You can't trust it anymore, Some PCA churches are just superb, sterling, excellent, but then some are not. So one PCA church, for instance, this past summer, uh, hosted the Revoice Conference, which basically says the church needs to revoice what they're saying about LGBTQ people, and we don't. We don't need to revoice anything. We just need to keep teaching what God has always said. And so the PCA is actually moving into a period of crisis on women's issues and other things. But that PCA church in Clemson used to have a great reputation. Um, I'll tell you, um, if you um, go to Clemson and find out the crew ministry there, the guy who's on crew, staff, I won't give his name over the air, but our church has supported him for about 15 years, and he's worked on that campus for 20 years And I can tell you if you just uh, contact crew at Clemson and ask for the director, uh, he will um, tell you of every good church in that area. And that's where I would start. That's where I would point you to. Great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: Okay. We had a follow-up on that uh, first Judas question. Yeah. Uh, The person wants to know, why did Judas choose Judas? Why did Jesus choose Judas if he knew Judas was of the devil?
1: Well, he was not initially of the devil, number one. Um, he, he became a devil. Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He had an opportunity to believe on Christ, but in the course of time, he made a decision in his heart to follow the evil one. So again, it gets down to how free was Judas. He was totally free. He could have believed on Christ, and Christ could have chosen, if he so decided, another apostle Would have betrayed him. But the prophets wrote again, these are uh, reasons that God gives us for believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And the prophets wrote that one of his close friends, he's called a close friend. So Jesus treated him as a friend. Jesus wasn't mean to him, he wasn't ugly to him. Uh, he even washed Judas's feet. He cared for the man. He was reaching out, and there was much more than foot washing going on that night. There was an appeal about dealing with sin in the human heart, and yet Judas chose to reject the Lord. So God had written that this would happen, and I think he chose him for other reasons, not just to fulfill this prophecy, but as a constant reminder that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Didn't we do miracles in your name? Uh, yes. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Yes. Did Judas do miracles and cast out demons in his name? Yes. Jesus commissioned all 12, and they all 12 did the casting out of demons and the performance of miracles. And so I think, among other reasons, God chose Judas as an illustration that someone can appear outwardly Christian but be inwardly lost. And to choose one who's even amongst the apostles who demonstrated that is God shouting from heaven that there needs to be more than just externals, but there needs to be an internal reality. And so Judas, in his heart, rejected Christ, and then in his heart literally chose Satan. And so he can be called a devil and Satan actually entered into him, he became demon-possessed, and there was actually only two people in the Bible who are called the son of perdition. One is Judas, and the other is the Antichrist, and both are possessed people. The Antichrist, of course, he may be alive. He may very well be alive, but he will be possessed at least during that final seven-year period, because he will be of the devil. So, These are people who preached in his name. Judas went out and preached his name. These are people who do miracles in his name and cast out demons in his name. And yet Jesus will say, I never knew you. Not I once knew you. Not I once had a relationship. See, some people falsely conclude that Judas was saved and then he lost his salvation. John 6 is very, very clear that he never believed. And John 13, a second time, echoes the same truth he never believed. He never truly, really was a true Christian. Because again, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, um, he said this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, he was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So Jesus, of course, was teaching a lesson, not just in servanthood, But truth's about the need to live a clean Christian life, because as we walk through this world, our feet get dirty. So you don't need another bath, Peter. Once bathed, always bathed. Once saved, always saved. But your feet get dirty as you walk through this world. And so he says, not all of you are clean, for he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Judas was never, ever, ever saved. Never a true believer. But he was a demonstration of God's omniscience, of the inspiration of the Bible, and also a sign marker for us to be cautious and a sign marker for us even to examine our own lives. And that's the whole reason that Jesus raises it up in Matthew chapter 7. Because if you know the context of that chapter, it's in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's drawing the sermon to a close And he's reminding the people and the key verse in the whole sermon, and that is, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And so people have an external righteousness like the Pharisees. And I think it's kind of interesting that when Jesus brings it to a close, he doesn't go for some kind of ho-hum average testimony, but people who cast out demons in his name people who preached in his name, people who did miracles in his name, and it's possible for an unbeliever to do all three of those, and all three of those are illustrated in the word of God. But with that said, they never knew the Lord. I mean, today, if we saw someone preaching and casting out demons and doing miracles, we'd say he's a man of God, a spirit-filled man of God. And Jesus said, actually, not all of them are even saved. So uh, Judas has some lessons for us in this whole process, good question. I hope that answers it.
0: All right, eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we've got a live caller standing by, let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
1: Yes. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. How can I be of help to you?
0: Yes. What do you think about that? When if you try to a, a question a pastor by his teachings or 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 or, or preaching. And then the, the pastor's wife said, "Well, they said the word is going to, have to argue, but then they don't want you to expose the error of their teaching, or the congregation will oppose you. And they will they, they think that what they're teaching is correct. Not naturally, you know it's really false, but the whole congregation will protect the pastor and go against that one, but against that one believer just because you don't agree with their teaching. So how would you be?" Con- not consider being a, a church divider but when one stands for truth so how would you defend yourself against
1: that well or it, it, a it's a great question and um th- this is i think you know an important thing for someone to consider sometimes people are in a church where there's just blatant error and sometimes it's because the pastor doesn't even know the lord himself we we think he d- he does because you know he says he's a called man of god and Sometimes you have even women who say, I'm going to call a woman of God, and God's called me to be a preacher, And but you know they're just in gross error, and so the thing to do is to confront it. If you have a problem with your brother, you go confront him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, you bring it to the church. Uh, so if he's in gross error, he needs to be confronted, and it sounds to me like you've done that, and you've hit a dead end, so, so much of a dead end that you're saying that, you're viewed as a divider, and the whole congregation is against you. It's time for you to leave. It's time for you to find another church. Uh, so um, you're, you're spinning your wheels at that point, and you're really actually being a negative witness if you think about it. Because if you're a committed Christian, and I'm just assuming, I don't know you, I've never uh, met you, but I am assuming that what you're saying is accurate, and you've represented this pastor well, and that you're not a divisive person, but you're. You're just trying to hold the integrity of God's Word. Um, let Let me make the example more extreme. Let's say a pastor, and we have two in our town that do gay marriages, and you go to that church, you're a negative witness. Because if you really are born again, and someone says, well, he's an exemplary Christian, and look at the life he lives, and he really loves the Lord, and he goes to that Presbyterian church, maybe I should go there too. And you become a negative witness because you're endorsing Uh, a pastor who is teaching false doctrine, and that's when it's time to get out. God does teach biblical separation, and I know we don't like to hear that in our day, but God does teach it in his word, and we need to heed it and uh, give it some serious, serious thought. Um, This caller, Rick, sounds uh, Hispanic to me. Uh, They might be interested to know that Community Bible Church of Beaufort has an Hispanic ministry. You want to share about that at all, or
0: indeed we do. At uh, eleven o'clock on Sundays, our pastor of uh, uh, family matters as well as uh, Latin studies, uh, Pastor Ed Vernoy, meets on the second floor of our main Bufort campus. And um, I'm not exactly sure what room it is, but it's a 217 or 215, something around there. Just ask when you come visit at 638 Paris Island Gateway. And somebody will be glad to direct you. But uh, that would be an ideal opportunity for this uh, caller, I believe.
1: And it really has kind of, you know, two groups of people in mind. Some of the Spanish people who come only speak Spanish. Uh, Of course, if they are married and they have children, their kids are usually bilingual. And usually language churches are one generation only. Uh, I did a missions conference out on the West Coast. And there were 13 former Soviet republics that were represented And people, because there are certain pockets like Sacramento, where this particular one was, where there's 230,000 Slavic people. And so they had a church, but I reminded them, I said, look, this is going to be a one generation church. All of your children are going to learn English. And unless you begin to offer English services as well, you're going to become obsolete. You're going to eventually die out. And the good news is they now have English services and. Uh, They're reaching out to the children, and once a month they—actually, I think it's once every six or seven weeks they do an English bilingual service, and some of the Slavic people are a little bit lost, but that's okay. Um, But we have two groups of people in mind at that service. One is uh, those who don't speak a word of English, and so that class is done in Spanish. But a lot of those people come to the 915 service— the nine fifteen and 11 o'clock services are virtually identical. Sometimes I preach five or 10 minutes longer than the 11 o'clock service, but they're the same service. And then they go at 11 o'clock to the Spanish fellowship. And for some people, that's kind of church for them. And they sing and they uh, encourage one another and they pray and uh, they do Spanish outreaches. And, and it's a place you can bring other Hispanic people to you know you're going to get sound doctrine. So this is important, and we have quite a large number of Hispanics living in South Carolina and in Beaufort County, and we need to reach the Hispanic people for Christ. If you go to communitybabelchurch.org, uh, there is uh, some an icon you can click on is that right rick
0: right yes you can go and uh, click on go to our
1: let me let me hear your spanish rick okay so
0: last week the uh, study was quien soy en cristo which means uh, uh, when you are in christ um and i'm not sure whether that was met as a question or whether that is uh you know what the results are but it should be an interesting
1: study i'm sure rick you you spent some time in spain is that right uh, in
0: italy and in there's italy. a similarity in... yeah
1: yeah so so he knows a little Spanish now. Pastor Vernoy who leads the Spanish group he was 18 years in Venezuela as a ministry, as a missionary so he's totally fluent as most of his kids are in Spanish uh, there's not a there's not a hispanic uh, drop of blood in him but but he, he loves the hispanic people as i do and he wants to reach him for Christ and so maybe maybe this person needs a change of venue It needs to think about that.
0: Absolutely. And as I said, you can go to communitybiblechurch.us, click on our messages tab, and you'll see uh, all of the ones listed as Ministerio Hispanos. We'll uh, get you.
1: Ministerio Hispanos. Hispanos. That's right. We'll give you a sample of it. All right.
0: All right. Very good. Thank you so much for calling, listener. And uh, our next caller wants to know... um, He'd like actually some clarity on 1 Corinthians 3.17, wants to know, is it possible for Christians to commit suicide and still go to heaven?
1: Well, it's possible for a Christian to do anything. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, Uh, because no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with every temptation, the Bible says he'll provide a way of escape. Now, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You're referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And let me bring it back to verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, he will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. He is dealing with false teachers who attempt to destroy the temple of God. We often use this verse in a broad sense in that we say, well, my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not to harm my body. Well, certainly 1 Corinthians chapter 6 would affirm that, and that would be a legitimate application from 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? So you might make a um, point as an individual temple, I don't want to do anything that would be harmful to my temple. You know, I see this guy in my neighborhood all the time, Rick, and he's a he's a walker, and but he's smoking a cigar as he walks. And I said, there's something wrong with this picture. I know he's probably trying to be healthy, but he's sucking down that cigar as he's walking through the neighborhood. And um anyway um but here he's talking about the temple being the local church that's the context so he's talking about someone who comes in to try to destroy the temple meaning the local assembly in fact some churches typically in the independent baptist realm uh they call themselves like Florence Baptist Temple which by the way is a great church if you live in Florence South Carolina uh they don't call themselves Florence Baptist fellowship or Florence Baptist church but Florence Baptist Temple And they would be keen off of this verse that one of the terms that God uses in the Bible to describe not just the individual, but the corporate temple in a local place is called the temple. So he's talking about people who come in and try to destroy the local church and God loves his sheep and he will guard his sheep. So this verse doesn't really have anything to do with suicide, but your question is, can a Christian commit suicide? And the answer is yes, Now, sometimes when people ask me that, I'm always asking them, are you thinking about it? Because it's very uh, often I've discovered that when I've been asked that question, they are. And they're just thinking that there's no hope in this life. And if heaven is so great, I might as well just check out. But I will tell you that, you know, I can't put a number on it. But I think, you know, nine out of 10 people who commit suicide are typically lost people. Not real believers, but lost people. But Christians can reach a point where Satan has reached such havoc on them that they've lost all hope that things can ever be different. And they think the way out is suicide. It's a very, very detrimental, selfish expression of sin. Uh, does a person go to hell because they commit suicide? Not if they're born again. But again, there are a lot of people who are outwardly religious but never been inwardly regenerated, and they go to hell faster. Judas um, didn't go to hell because he committed suicide. He went to hell sooner than he might have because he committed suicide. Um, And if a person is a true Christian, what they have said to all those who are left behind, you know, Christianity really doesn't work. Our God was not big enough to work on our behalf, and to meet every need that he promises to meet. And so it's a really negative testimony. It's very hurtful for the people who are left behind because they have to deal with it. And I wouldn't say that in 100% of all the cases that this is a selfish act. And let me so let me qualify that. I think of a family who came to our church, and I've done as a pastor funerals for five people since I went into the ministry in 1978, five people who committed suicide. But one was a 16-year-old boy and he actually, they weren't even members of our church. They'd only been coming for about a month. I met he and his mother out in the hallway and he was having some pressure, stress issues, and they put him on this one particular drug. And, you know, some of these antidepressants, if you just read the fine print, it says may create suicidal thoughts. And so as soon as he got on the antidepressant, he started having suicidal thoughts. And one day at the bus stop, he stepped out in front of a cement mixer truck. And that was it. Uh, Very, very sad. Now, I don't think for him it was so much a selfish act as it was a drug that really got him all messed up on the inside. And people thought they were helping him, but they they weren't in that particular case. And very often, a lot of drug therapy, and I'm not discounting it at all, but many times it ignores the bigger issue. It's a band-aid approach to a a bigger issue. But in most suicides, it's just a selfish act. And we think that this is going to be the solution. And the hurt, I mean, I just know as a pastor, I mean, I... You know, I, I pass through a large church and people come in every week for counseling and people come in who, yeah, I was 11 years old and my dad, I saw him shoot himself. And another person says, you know, I came home one day from church and I found my dad hanging in the closet. And I'm mean, just one thing after another. And they deal with this, you know, 25 years later and they come in for counseling and trying to get past it. And very often people blame themselves. And so it's just a very, very hurtful selfish, bad testimony thing. And it has implications when you get to heaven and that if say God ordained for you to live 80 years and you only live 40 because you committed suicide, then you lost 40 years of service for the kingdom of God and your eternal reward will be that much less. So um, I hope that answers it. And I would just say to this person, if it's even remotely in the back of your mind, that this is an option for you, get help. Go get help today. Go go go. talk to a trusted person and tell them what your feelings are, and you can be helped through this. Very good.
0: I think we've got time for one more quick question. Uh, my, this is from Kirby, a listener here in South Carolina. He says, My mother's an unbeliever, she and my entire family. It breaks my heart. They are Episcopalians, and I have preached the truth to them many times to no avail. She's currently going through a Bible study with people at the church by Amy Jill Levine, or Levine, And some of the things are concerning me that she's learning from her messages. Do you know of Dr. Levine's teaching? I am brokenhearted for my family, Dr. Brogy, but it's so evident they are lost. Seems I can't have a conversation with mom or dad that doesn't come out as them saying I'm being so judgmental. And all I'm trying to do is show them how their view is not in line with God's view via scripture. And today my mother said, well, I would think you'd listen better and less judgment and be less judgmental for what you claim to be. And that concerned me because, frankly, I was a bit frustrated because it's been the same story for years now, but I was wrong for being frustrated.
1: Well, she is a professor at Vanderbilt uh, University School of Divinity, which is a liberal apostate uh, group. And so uh, if you, of course, she has a Jewish name. Uh, She teaches New Testament as a Jewish person, but not as a believer in Jesus Christ. So she is a heretic. Uh, Like a lot of uh, heretics, they're very appealing. Uh, They make you feel good. Uh, They give you messages that are positive sometimes and lead you down the wrong road. Uh, Jews for Jesus, if you go on their website and just Google her name, they will give you some help in terms of her wicked theology and as bad as it is. But, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, was asked one day by one of the disciples, and it was a great question and a legitimate question. Um, but you could equally ask, can anything else good come out of Vanderbilt Divinity School? And the answer is no, because if you were a true believer, you wouldn't be teaching there. It's apostate. It's it's um It's like Duke Divinity School and... Uh, Emory Divinity School in Atlanta, and uh, just so many of these schools that have gone south that don't have the gospel and a very eclectic theology. And um, so she, she's, she's not someone that you would want your mother to follow. So how do you approach your mom? And that's really the bigger question. Uh, it comes down to an authority issue. You see, this is what false teachers do. This woman teaches New Testament at this divinity school. So she's going to open up the Bible, but she's not going to lead people in the right way. So things need to be tested. We need to be discerning. And so what you would need to do is actually probably listen to at least a snippet of her message. And what these false teachers classically do is they take verses out of context. You can make the Bible mean whatever you want if you take it out of context. It says in the Bible, there is no God. But contextually, it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so what you would need to do is to listen to some snippet, say, well, mommy, this is what she said from Matthew 25, but let's look at this in its context. And you see, this is a very, very different meaning than what she has given it. And so um, the biggest thing is to try to take your mom through the simple plan of salvation. You might want to use, would you like to have God as your friend? and just say, hey mom, would you watch this with me and give me your opinion? Since you have such a hunger to to study right now, I would just really appreciate your opinion. Now, if you say, mom, you're lost and you need to listen to this, you're going to put her in the defensive mode. But when you ask her for opinion, that puts it in a different realm. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for being with us today for The Bible Line.